For the last two weeks, our church has been digging through this prophecy together in Isaiah chapter 9. We will read the first few verses of the chapter and begin to hopefully wrap up our time there uh, that we've been spending for the last couple of weeks celebrating what I hope is a more substantive view of Christmas maybe than anything you've ever experienced before. Hopefully something that we believe we would call the gospel, the good news, will not only just be the center of our life and practice anywhere else, but even especially so in Christmas. So one of the things we, sh- we share together as the church when we're, uh, when we're celebrating good stuff that happens uh, as the church, um, Christmas and Easter are kind of a lot, like, uh, are a lot like Valentine's Day in a relationship, all right? So, so if you're only excited about loving and caring for someone and taking them out on a date and like expressing your affections for them uh, once a year on Valentine's Day, then what you do on that day that you celebrate them kind of undermines and, and, and sort of like outs you for the rest of the year, right? Right, so if like the one time you take a spouse out on a date is, is Valentine's Day, then it has a kind of funny way of like undermining who you are the rest of the year, right? And so the same thing is true for us as, as Christians, the, the church, we really believe that there's something going on here that we simply celebrate with a great deal of excitement alongside the rest of our culture somewhat at this particular time of year. But there's a sense in which if this is the only time of year that we get excited about Jesus coming to be with us and for us, then it kind of belittles and undermines who we say we are the rest of the year. So maybe if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe this whole thing called the church or this thing called Jesus that we celebrate seems strange to you, then I'm really glad you're here, and I want you to consider on its merits what it is that we celebrate together, not just now when it's kind of convenient for the rest of the world to celebrate Jesus with us, but all the time. And hopefully what we do today and what we do all the time won't simply undermine, I guess, what we celebrate at Christmas. But I want to read to you then, maybe setting the course for not just today, but all the time that we live together, beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into, into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be 
no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In the time that we spend together, I pray that these become more than just ink on a page, but they become the words of God that speak life to us. So we've been meditating through this text for the last two weeks, and we've looked at kind of where we've come. If I could recap for you, I would say that what we find here is an unexpected place the north, this, the, the words that you may not be familiar with, Zebulun, Naphtali, and even Galilee, these are areas that were the furthest reaches. They were the outskirts. They were where the outsiders lived. And yet that apparently is the place where God is going to start this work, to teach to us that no one is so far gone that God cannot reach them. In fact, we find out that Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Jesus is the one who begins his ministry in Galilee. Not in Jerusalem, not in the central place where you would expect, but out there amongst the outcasts and the rejects to teach to us something about the very nature of God. We also saw that there seems to be an unexpected plan. Did you see there was a call back to Judges chapter 7 and and a reference to a place called Midian? Did you catch that? That was a reference to uh, a man by the name of Gideon, the original Leonidas, who won a, a miraculous victory so that God would be glorified through a small group of people. You see, there's an unexpected plan, and the unexpected plan here is that there's actually going to be a child that is born. There's a son that's going to be given. In the midst of this terrible time that Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz, where he's tempted to to make an, an ungodly political alliance with the Assyrians, he's called to trust in God, and there's going to be an unexpected plan coming about, and a child will be the sign that this plan is coming to pass. He'll be an unexpected person. He will come as a child, a son given for us. But then there'll be an unexpected response. Did you catch that? That a new king is coming, but then it apparently tells us that joy in verse 3 will be the response. There will be an amazing thing that God is doing with an unexpected result. There will be the multiplication of joy and the multiplication of peace peace that will have no end. And submission to this king will bring this about. This new government that will be on this new king will bring about this great joy. Now as we recap, I'll show you kind of up here on the, on the slide just kind of where we've been. We saw two different phrases that we dug through the last couple of weeks. First and foremost, that when we look to Jesus, he is our satisfaction. The sense that, that God is doing something for us in Jesus Ready? Go? No? Click. The ultimate answers to our questions are found in Jesus. Uh, Even though Ahaz had a political problem, even though he looked to God for a political solution, an earthly solution, we come to find out that that the answer to his question wasn't a political one or even an earthly one. In fact, chapter 8 tells us that the earthly solutions lead in darkness. But instead, we find that our ultimate problems, the ultimate answers to our questions, will be given in Jesus. For Ahaz, for Isaiah, and for you, and for me. Our hope, then, is in Jesus. So here's my question. As we find ourselves in this text, 
we see this amazing thing. And for, for all of you, I want to ask this question. What's on your Christmas list? What's the thing that you want the most? What's the, the thing that you desire more than anything else? More than anything else, what's the thing that you want? Now, for some of you, this may be like a letter to Santa, right? Of all ages, right? What's, what, what's the thing you want? What's the thing you desire? What's the thing that you hope for? What are you hoping someone might sneak into, into maybe your house or under your tree tonight? Right? What's, what's the thing you hope will show up? And for some of you, you, you're pretty well responsible for everything under the tree. But if you were honest with yourself, what would you like? What would be nice? What would you like to have? Picture that thing or a couple of those things. What is the thing that you want for Christmas? Allow yourself the ability to really think seriously about what you would like to have. And remember that. If Ahaz were to answer that question, he would say he wanted a political solution. He wants a kingdom that's safe. If Ahaz had a dear Santa list or a Christmas desire, it would be for a political and earthly solution. So what do you want? What's the thing that you desire more than anything else? What do you want the most? If you were going to give yourself the freedom to think about it, what's on the list of things you would like to get for Christmas? We come to find out that Jesus answers these things for us. And if you ask, how is that possible? Verse 6 gives us the answer. By what means? A child will be born, a son will be given. The government will be resting upon his might and his sovereignty. And the last, the last two weeks we've dug into what that would look like, specifically the first two relational terms, that Jesus will come as a wonderful counselor and as a mighty God. But I want to spend our time this evening looking at the last two relational terms and then seeing how they unfold. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Jesus will come, and we will know that God has come to be with us. God has done something for us, and the way that he has done it is by demonstrating these amazing things for us, that he is going to be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. He'll be a father, a father. What I would argue for you is that there may be no deeper wound in, in our own culture, in our own society, than what I would call the father wound. The father wound. The, the, thing that, the thing that a father is meant to instill in and model for children, and yet, because we live in an imperfect and broken world full of sinful people, fathers are no exception. There's a book called The Father Factor I encourage you to read. It's not by a Christian, but he talks by the name of Stephen Fulter is the guy's name, and he, and he talks about the four most dominant, at least in our culture, in our society, dysfunctional father figures, and how that affects your sense of identity, how that affects your career, how that affects every aspect of your life. And I want to run through them here, and I want to point to the possibility that, that this sense of everlasting father is actually something that we desire very deeply. The first one that, that Fulter begins to identify is the, the never-satisfied father. Right? The never-satisfied father. And, and even though maybe they never said it, there's this sense in which like, you've always got to achieve something to please this father. There's always this sense in which you haven't done enough. You haven't really make me, made me proud. 
And if you have, then maybe, hopefully, you will do something. And I'd be a lot happier as a father, you seem to see, if you would do that thing. Have you seen this? Kind of the, the sense in which, like, it's never good enough. Have you experienced this? A good chunk of people experience this. When they actually look at their own fathers, they would say it's a person that isn't really happy with them, isn't really satisfied with them, has never really expressed a sense of pride or any sense of encouragement. Have you been there? The dad that goes, hey, instead of just good job, I'm proud of you, but yeah, that's a good step in the right direction. And instead of encouraging someone, they, they simply point toward the thing that they ought to do next. Ever experienced this? A good chunk of people have. Here's the way this plays out. This leads to people constantly trying to prove themselves. This will leave you as hard as you can trying to prove yourself to yourself, to others, always measuring yourself. You'll have cycles of success and failure where you're be, you'll be comparing yourself to others and sometimes you'll think you did a really good job and sometimes you'll be living in shame. And you'll have this cycle of approval and your self-image will always be based on how well you feel like you are performing compared to others. You seen this? It comes from a never-satisfied father. Here's the second one. The second one is the time bomb dad. Right? This is, the, this is the kind of dad that, that goes in and out of these places where you just never know what to expect. At any given moment, dad could just blow up. Dad could just erupt. There could be just this there's, this, there's this kind of tension under the surface. And at any given moment, dad is clearly the most volatile person in the house. And things seem to be running along until, traumatically, dad blows up and shocks everything in the entire system. The way this plays out is that if you've experienced this, if you had the time bomb dad, you're always waiting for dad to blow up. You're terrified, you're scared, and you lived in fear. Because after all, you can't love someone you're afraid of. You can't love someone that you secretly think might come to harm you. For some people, this plays out in actual abuse, physical, verbal This plays out in a father that instead of loving and caring for their children, actually harms them. And you grow up hating your dad. You grow up in fear. You grow up desiring as much as you can, trying to be in control. A a broad spectrum of anxiety disorders starts here. Because the one person who's supposed to give you comfort ends up being the one person you can't depend on when things hit the fan. And when bad things happen, you think, what did I do this time? You know this? This fear, wondering whether or not something bad is about to happen. Always wondering whether or not disaster is right around the corner. It could be from a time bomb dad. The third one he points out is what he calls an emotionally distant dad. Right? So this is, this is a dad that never expresses emotion. This is actually the television dad of the 1950s, right? This guy that just kind of is stoic, doesn't express anything. Maybe he would say, I love you, but there's, there's a sense in which, like, if this is your dad, if he did say, I love you, it would be weird. Like, if he, if he just came and hugged you and expressed emotion, you would be, instead of being comforted by it, you'd be kind of weirded out by it. And there's a sense in which, you know this, like, if you, if you call home, you call dad, 
he, he tries quickly to hand the phone to mom, right? Ever heard these sayings like you work with dad but you talk to mom? This is the emotionally distant dad. Folter says that this actually affects around 50% of children and families that emerged since the 1950s. This idea that dad is there, he's, he's, he's present, but emotionally he's distant. You see this play out in all sorts of ways. When this plays out as we reflect upon God being a father, this shows, this is where you see this, a person who has only an intellectual theory about God, but no real affection or love for God. When you say, love the Lord you God, your God with all your heart, mind, and being, there's a sense in which you go, how? I don't, I don't know what to do. You see this, there's a lot of people affected by this. One of the ways you can see this, for those of you that were, if you're, maybe you would call yourself a Christian, but you're in this situation, the way this plays out, is you find it incredibly difficult to express any emotion in worship. Even though you would say you believe in God and He is mighty, that's simply an intellectual assent. And the thought of being joyful when singing to God, thinking about God, creeps you out, freaks you out, seems to be distracting. God is an intellectual intellectual theory. He's a judge you have to obey. He's someone you have to do your best to please. This comes from a dad who thinks they're doing their job by simply being present and meeting needs, but in the end, failing to nurture in any meaningful way. The fourth and last one, he says, he calls it the absent dad. This is probably the second largest chunk of our society taken up and represented here. It's just not really a part of the family's life. The best example of this, I encourage you, in, uh, in the 90s, there was an article written uh, about Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson was one of my great idols. He was like this amazing baseball and football player. Uh, he was just phenomenal. And in 1995, there was a Sports Illustrated article in which he said that he, his own father had never come to watch a single professional football or baseball game that he'd played in. So this plays out on uh, multiple different levels. And what happens is you interpret that, that, reje- that absence from the Father as rejection. It creates a sense of sadness, a sense of like you're never good enough. You're always afraid of being left alone. It expresses itself as anger, resentment, and it has this perverted way of defining masculinity going forward. And you don't know God because you don't even know your dad. You see, the whole Old Testament hinges on this picture. The whole Old Testament hinges on this picture. If you want to, you can flip there with me. The very last verse of the Old Testament in, in Malachi, right before Matthew begins, right before, well, you heard, you heard Joe read right out of, out of Matthew chapter 1, right? You heard Joe read out of the beginning, but do you know where it ended? Malachi chapter 4, at the very end of the book, in verse 6, we find a prophecy that God will do something. God will accomplish something. It says that, Behold, I will send you an Elijah the prophet before the, before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. And then he, this Messiah figure that we celebrate as Jesus, he will turn 
the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Did you get this? This this prophecy of the one that is to come, this prophecy of, of this one that is to be born, this son is to be given, he will come and he will fulfill the greatest desire of God the Father to restore his children to himself, to draw children back to their heavenly Father such that they will be reconciled then to their earthly Father. Did you get this? This is beautiful. That you may think of your father in one of these four categories, but listen to this. Jesus shows up to demonstrate that our God and our Father, in fact, accepts you just as you are. He is not unsatisfied. And He accepts you based on His accomplishment. Picture this. Picture like the, you've heard this story out of John chapter 8. There's a woman who's caught in adultery, and Jesus comes and He says to this woman who's caught in adultery and to the people around ready to stone her to death for her sin, as was their custom. And he says, He who is without sin cast the first stone. When all of your accusers, all of her accusers drop the stone and walk away. And he says something profound. You know, where have your accusers gone? And the woman says they've left. And he says two things. Neither do I accuse you. Now go and sin no more. There's a profound thing Jesus is stating there in the order in which he says it. Neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. You see, most people conceptualize a God who, if they will stop sinning, he'll stop condemning. If you'll just do better, he'll start receiving you. If you'll just be better, if you'll just perform better, there's mercy and grace and joy to celebrate. But, but that's not Jesus. Jesus reconciles the heart of the Father to his children by by being there for them in a powerful way. And he says something miraculous. I don't condemn you. Now therefore, obey, follow, sin no more. He accepts us based on his accomplishment, not on our own. Jesus demonstrates that God is not the time bomb dad. In fact, Psalm 103 says that God, in fact, is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. And he is abounding in steadfast love. God is not an emotionally distant dad. In fact, Zephaniah tells us this beautiful picture. The, the prophet Zephaniah paints a picture of the God and Father who, who actually it says he sings over his children. Right? So, so if you relate to this, this will freak you out. You've got an emotionally distant dad. Imagine your emotionally distant dad singing love songs over you. Does that creep you out? Because if it does, hear this good news. That our God, because Jesus has received us and accepted us, has restored us to Him such that now He sings over us. Our God sings over His children. And lastly, our God is not the absent Father. Instead, we celebrate every Christmas that, according to Isaiah 6 and Matthew chapter 1, God is with us. Friend, hear the good news. What we need the most from our Father comes for us in Jesus. What we need the most comes from God and we receive it as gift. 
John chapter 1 tells us his Christmas story. And he doesn't tell us about a manger scene. He tells us about a word that was spoken by God in all of eternity. And he says that the true light that gives light to every single man has come into the world. And he came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who have received him, that is Jesus, to those who have believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In Jesus, we see the everlasting Father. We see a perfect Father. Not the never satisfied Father. Not the time bomb Father. Not the emotionally distant Father. And not the absent Father. But the present, gracious, approving, and restoring Father. The last thing we see here is that we're, it, it says that Jesus will not only be an everlasting Father, but a Prince of Peace. We saw this last week that we see for us, this is, this is for us kind of like a Trinitarian seed of the Gospel. Because you kind of see this picture of, of the way that God reveals Himself as a creating Father, as a, as a redeeming Son, as a sustaining Spirit, a Counselor, a God, a Father, and yet a Prince. It's interesting, right? Because if you were going to speak of someone, you, you wouldn't necessarily speak of someone as a father and a prince. You usually only speak of them as one. A person is either a son or a father, typically, and, and the Bible usually references the person as such. But not here. It says that God's going to do something that will kind of transcend your understanding, and, and He will not only be a father figure for us, restoring us to our earthly fathers as well as our heavenly father forever, but also he's going to be a son that is a prince, a royal son that brings peace. He brings peace. John 14 says it this way. Jesus speaks to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. So now let not your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. John 16, he says it again, Behold, an hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you might be scattered, each to his own home, and you'll leave me. Yet I'm not alone, Jesus says, for the Father is with me. And I've said these things to you. Not, not to shame you, not to, not to discourage you, but he says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. You see, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Do you hear the Prince of Peace? Do you hear the one who brings peace, not, not by the sword, but one who brings peace by a miraculous means? Think about this. This is like... This is like an empire without imperialism. Did you catch the implications of this? It says that the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. What does this look like for us? This means that Christmas, one author puts it, by the incarnation, the coming of God to be with us, through Christmas we celebrate that peace with God is now available. Because if you make peace with God, then you can actually go out and make peace with others. Thus, multiplying the peace that God gives to you. In fact, we're encouraged and commanded to do that. 
And the more people who hear and believe the gospel, the good news that God has made peace available to us in Jesus, well then the better off the world is. And Christmas then is a celebration of the increase of peace, both with God, according to Malachi, with fathers, parents, family, and even with people who aren't family, even the outsider, the alien, the outcast. What does this look like? It says that there's an increase. Because of this Prince of Peace, there's going to be an increase of his government and peace. You've got to catch how ironic and powerful that is. In the history of the world, there's never been a government that increased by peace. Right? Even even one of the greatest, let's let's call it one of the greatest like uh, PR moves, the Pax Romana and the the quick-moving Roman Empire that, that would have existed a few centuries after this was written. As it expanded and, and increased what it called the Pax Romana, which was the Roman peace, do you remember how, it did, how they did that? They did that with a very large army. Lots of technologically advanced weapons. How are they doing it now? Think of how current governments have achieved what they own now. How did we get here? How do we call this place America? In what way did the United States of America acquire what it has now? Was it through peace? Has there ever been a government? Has there ever been a state that has acquired its territory, its its sovereignty through peace? I would argue in a broken, fallen world, that's impossible. And we take what we want. We establish sovereignty through brutality, exploitation, and war. But not this king. And not his kingdom. This king is expanding his rule and reign in a way that is upside upside down from the world. You see, the greatest in this king isn't the greatest warrior who destroys people. The greatest in this kingdom is the one actually who is the slave. If if someone wants to be great in this new kingdom that God is bringing in Jesus, then they must first be your servant. You see, this king expanded his kingdom not by sending his loyal subjects out to die for his political purposes. This king establishes his kingdom by running in front of the army and dying in their place. He runs out. He lays down his life so that his army, so that his kingdom would not know anything but what? Peace that will have no end. This is what God is bringing in Jesus. This is what God is accomplishing it. And it will happen, it says in the very end here, verse 7, from this time forth forevermore as if to encourage us and say that the zeal of the Lord will finish this. So where does this leave us? Go back to your Christmas list. What was that thing you want for Christmas? What's that thing? What's the thing maybe for some of you you wrote to Santa wanting? What's that thing that if you were really honest you would like to have? What's the thing you wish you could get for Christmas? If you were really honest, what's the thing that you want? 
You see, Ahaz wanted a political earthly solution, and God offered to him in Jesus Christ a spiritual eternal solution. Now, I typically take a, a, a pretty pompous state, uh, kind of stance on this. Like, I, I think about, like, well, surely Ahaz should have known. Surely Ahaz should have known this is going to be an eternal thing. Surely the Israelites should have known that, like, God wasn't going to swoop in and give a hero to save the day like they wanted. Surely they would have known better than to hope for something that, that would eventually fail. Surely they would have known that there's not going to be a hero to come in and overthrow the kings and the governments and lead them out into victory like they think. And I kind of laugh at them for taking it so literally. But then God speaks to them and He speaks to me. As I laugh at their desire for an earthly satisfaction, an earthly happiness, an earthly joy, God speaks to them and to me and says, that's kind of what you were wanting also. And that's probably the thing at the top of your want list. That's probably the thing that you want more than anything else. And I would argue that for Ahaz and for us, if what we really want is just for someone to save the day today, if we just want a hero to heal everything and march away and leave us in joy and happiness, and as, as, as we celebrate kind of flippantly and, and superficially, right, have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. Is it? And if that's what we want and that's what we expect, then I would argue and maybe encourage you to think a little bit differently about Christmas. As you look at the whole story and see our place in it, we actually come to find out that Jesus is a better solution than the one that Ahaz wanted. Jesus was a better solution than the thing Ahaz was praying for. Jesus is a better gift than the thing at the top of your list. Jesus is a greater gift. And to see the new kingdom he brings and the peace he offers is to experience a new life. And to simply just begin to open our eyes to this, to begin to consider the possibility that God's greatest gift is Jesus, is to experience the kind of peace that only he gives. Ahaz wanted a, vict a victory over his enemies. And, and God gave much, a much gentler approach. He gave a baby. I'm going to just go on a limb here and say that, possibly, if you're like me, Christmas isn't holly and jolly. Christmas is a reminder of things that are, <laughs> that are broken, that don't work. And if you want proof, look at all the Christmas lists. Look how hungry we are for something. Look how much we expect a gift to satisfy us and give us joy. I'm going to go out on a limb, and if you're like me, you probably have more in common with, with Ebenezer Scrooge or the Grinch when you think seriously, like Ahaz, about your earthly situation. But with Jesus, there is joy in the midst of this brokenness.
Even though this is still broken, the world still hurts. Sin still runs amok. People still get sick. They die unexpectedly. People still get divorced. People still are abused. They're, they're objectified. They're manipulated. They're bought and sold like goods. Wars are still waged. But with Jesus, there's a joy in the midst. In fact, with Jesus, there's a rescue that's beyond just our circumstance. And we're invited to see a light in the darkness that grants us peace. He is our Emmanuel, God who is with us, who offers a rescue from much bigger things, who offers a gift greater than we ever could imagine. So here's my question. As you think about the thing you want for Christmas, what would it look like for Jesus to satisfy you in such a way that you would no longer even want it? What's that thing you wish you had? Maybe not just for Christmas, but what's the thing you want? What's the joy, the approval, the comfort, the acceptance, the control, the power? What's the thing you wish you could have? The achievement, the career, the status, the bank account. What's the thing that you wish you could have? And Christmas asks a daring and bold question. What would it look like if Jesus satisfied you so greatly that you no longer wanted that thing anymore? What would Jesus have to change in you and turn in you such that you wouldn't even want that thing any longer? Because our God has given us reconciliation with Him, with our own fathers and mothers, with the people around us. Our God has done something to grant us a strange and miraculous peace and joy in a kingdom that's upside down. And for you to even believe it or even think that it's possible is to begin to experience the joy that only Jesus can give. A rescue that's greater than we could ever imagine.